You are now listening to a podcast made in collaboration with the Copenhagen College Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 72 of the Social Media and Politics podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, political scientist at the University of Copenhagen. Remember, you can connect with the show on Twitter at SMNP Podcast and swing by our website, socialmediaandpolitics.org. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before getting into the topic of today's episode, there's been something I've been meaning to do for a while and I keep forgetting, and that is mention the results of last month's Twitter poll, where a whopping 112 of you responded to the question, how do you pronounce G-I-F in reference to those silly animated videos flying around on Twitter, which, fun fact, stand for graphic interchange format, and the results are decisive. 85% of you prefer a hard G as in GIF, whereas a measly 15% prefer GIF. So I stand corrected from the year in review episode where I had the assumptions backwards, even though I prefer GIF myself. Um, But because this podcast audience is so diverse and so international, I had a friend of mine who works at a polling firm replicate this question to a representative sample of 288 U.S. adults. And there again, the results are decisive with 77% preferring GIF. So I think we can safely put that one to rest. But on to today's episode which is a conversation with Dr. Rachel Gibson, who is a professor of politics at the University of Manchester in the UK. And those of you in the field will be well familiar with Dr. Gibson's work. She is one of the pioneers in researching how British parties have adopted digital media and social media. And in particular, the work that I'm most familiar with is her research on citizens' participation in light of digital technologies. And going back to before we actually considered social media a form of political participation, starting to kind of categorize and conceptualize forms of what was then called e-participation. So we're going to get into that. And I love these sort of longitudinal dives into how political parties have been adopting social media. I think it's really important as we're you know, focusing on what's the next feature or the next change in Facebook or Instagram's algorithm to take a step back and conceptualize what's new and what's different and kind of what does it all mean that parties are taking up new forms of communication and voter contact. So So in this episode, Dr. Gibson is going to give her take on the four phases, as she calls them, of British parties' digital media adoption, going back to their use of websites in the 1997 British election and moving up to their adoption of social media today. We also compare British parties' digital media adoption to those of parties in the U.S. to kind of see, was it the Brits that followed the Americans? Were the Brits innovating on their own? And then we look at the effects of parties' adoption of social media on citizens and how digital media media may or may not have affected the political participation patterns and activities of citizens in Britain. So I think it's a fascinating interview. A lot of this material Dr. Gibson is writing up into a new book. So keep an eye on the podcast Twitter feed. I'll be sure to promote it when it comes out. And let's go ahead and cut to the interview. My guest is Dr. Rachel Gibson, professor of politics at the University of Manchester. And we caught up after a workshop put together by Drs. Kate Domit, Nikki Sue, and Sam Power at the University of Sheffield. So this is an interview recorded on the road. And as a result, the audio quality takes a bit of a hit. But these conversations are just so much more fun to have in person. So I hope you enjoy it. 
Dr. Gibson, thanks so much for taking the time out. and Welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be here. So you just gave a keynote at this workshop at the University of Sheffield, and you were talking about basically political parties in Britain, their adoption of new technology, but not starting with social media, but going back to campaign websites. So you broke those phases down or that adoption down in four phases. Could you sort of recount where these parties have come from in terms of their websites to where we are with social media? Yes. So I've been studying this area for uh, longer probably than I should confess, but at least two decades, which is when the web really first took off in the UK and, and elsewhere in the world as a campaign tool. And so in the course of my studies, I've noted that there's been a significant shift in how we study it, but also that has followed what parties are actually doing in terms of their goals and what they want to get out of digital campaigning. And I think that in the four phases, the idea is to sort of map an increasing level of strategic understanding of the medium and argue that probably in the first couple of phases, have a clear idea really about what they were doing with their digital tools. I think they thought that they should have them, that everybody else was using them, but they weren't really clear about what strategic advantage it gave them over other kinds of media. And so in the very, very early days, I think it was a bit of a free-for-all, I like to think sort of amateur hour that, you know, you could sort of launch a site and put different font on and um, different images. And and there was a kind of very sort of open and playful attitude almost. And I think that changed in the course of perhaps one election cycle that parties began to professionalize and think that their sites needed to look a bit more streamlined and integrated with what they were doing in other media campaigning. But again, I don't think they had a clear idea of how it was different or what what added value it had. So you saw a lot of transposition of existing media content onto the web. Mm -hmm. So press releases would sort of be put in a newsroom. That would be then sent out to journalists that would be sort of that was the, the you know the, the mechanism of distribution was sort of changed but the actual press release remained the same i think the first two phases were were about kind of putting their toes in the water and sort of professionalizing then what they had done and then i think there was a shift in this third phase which i argue brought in a more strategic understanding of the activist mobilization potential of the net and how it was able to reach out to your supporters and your base and arguably help particularly candidates and smaller parties that maybe didn't have the infrastructure to build a huge headquarters, start to build support base up around the country um, at a local level and involve more of their activists and their supporters. So there was a shift into what I argue is community building and, and using the web to build virtual communities of support. And the bigger parties got involved in this as well. So we saw the spread of things like um, the MIBO site in in the US is sort of seen as a very kind of classic example of my Barack Obama. You know, it's a hub site and it activated uh, citizens and it allowed them lots of opportunities to take action. So, so the web became a more dynamic space and it became more interactive and parties started to kind of really begin to see it as doing something different to what they had done before with other media. And then the fourth phase, I argue, is um, a shift again into a more focused communication towards voters and, and particularly individual voters with personalized messages. So it's, it's almost that it has finally come to a point of doing what campaigns have always kind of been about, which is getting out the vote. I suppose my argument is, is that digital technology for a long time, I think, was seen as a kind of an add-on and something that you did in addition to your main campaign. And so it was always sort of seen as a secondary kind of medium. And so finally, I think in this fourth phase, it's almost like that's where it's moved to the mainstream and it started to kind of take on what we would see as campaigning more generally is about get out the vote mobilization. And when I think of, you know, 
parties adopting technologies. I mean, obviously the US and MIBO is a sort of first adopter example, but the UK was sort of right there as well. So, I mean, do you think the UK was sort of following examples from the US or were they pioneering on their own? Because they were kind of going on around the same time, right? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the phases, because what the phases are quite useful in a way in that, what I've tried to do in the wider work that I've done around this is map those phases in different countries and sort of understand when they move from experimentation to professionalization to community building. And so you can see that in most countries, there is a, at least a sort of three phase development. Not all countries, not many countries have moved into this kind of fourth phase of micro-targeted sort of mobilization. Um, but if we look and compare the US and the UK, actually the US was very early to adopt and start and move quite quickly from experimentation into a more professionalized look. So that early, really early kind of very experimental phase was very short lived. Whereas I think in the UK and certainly in other parliamentary systems that I've looked at, it tends to be that it took longer, that parties didn't immediately sort of figure out how they could standardize and professionalize their sites. So that that sort of initial burst, I think, was stronger in the US. And then I think they moved even more quickly then onto if you like, the Howard Dean phase was probably the beginning of community mobilization. And I think that was the mid 2000s. And evidence of that kind of community building probably didn't really emerge in the UK until around the 2010 election, I'd say, was when we started to see that parties then looked over to the US, they saw what Barack Obama had done, and started to kind of bring that over. So the US, I think, has been at the forefront. And I do think that other countries have sought to import some of those techniques and follow it. And I think the UK has, you know, it hasn't been complete laggard, but it hasn't been as quick to adopt. Mm. But I think that's probably the legacy in America that the campaign innovation just moves more quickly than in other countries. So thus it applies in the digital sphere as well. Mm. And do you think because you talk about social media as, you know, the adoption being as part of one of the phases of the overall kind of digital campaigning, but I'm wondering if we segment the adoption of internet websites and then the adoption of social media, do you think there's been a sort of difference there where parties perhaps more quick to adopt social media because of their experience with websites? Or how do you see that dynamic? That's an interesting question, actually. And it's not one that I had looked at in the context of the talk. But it's certainly, there's an argument about, I suppose, you'd expect those that moved quickly on Web 1 would have been equally quick to move to Web 2. And I do think there is perhaps an argument that smaller parties, at least initially, they were seen to benefit from, from the Web and its arrival in general. So Web 1, one understood that to mean that it, it equalized exposure across the board. So even if you're a small party or a large party, you still had to have voters find your site and come to you. So there was this kind of balancing of the playing field. So in the kind of Web 1 environment, we did see that some of the smaller parties in party systems understood. And they were actually, I mean, I said at the start that parties didn't know why they were there and why they were using it. Actually, some of the smaller parties did understand, I think, more clearly than perhaps the larger parties, the strategic benefit to them, that it allowed them to kind of get their message across. Certainly for some of the the more extremist parties, it allowed them to bypass the mainstream media, which they sort of felt was uh, either didn't report them or was biased towards them and reach their supporters directly. So, so I think there has been a kind of a history that perhaps that innovation has come sort of from the, the fringe or the margins. Um, And then if you look at social media, so you look again at at when parties shifted into social media, I mean, certainly there does seem to be an argument that the smaller parties, again, recognize the value it held for them, that they could now use things like Facebook as an organizing tool. Um, And it was 
you know, effectively free to use. You needed an internet connection, but the account, you know, the platform itself was not something that they had to provide. So it did actually allow smaller parties to do this mobilizing and this community building. Whereas larger parties built their own purpose-built sites like Mibo, the smaller parties were able to kind of exploit Facebook and, and platforms like that. So it allowed them parity or to sort of keep up. I'd have to go back and probably look a bit more closely at the evidence in each case. But my, my initial response would be that the innovation and the early adoption um, was pushed by, by some of the smaller parties that mm -hmm. saw a strategic benefit and then, so then followed by the large. That's interesting. And I want to keep up on that point because Britain has you know, traditionally been a very two-party system between the center-left Labour Party and the center-right uh, conservatives. Um, but somewhere in this period of digital adoption, it became more fragmented, right? You had the Lib Dems uh, forming a coalition, I believe it was in, what was it, 2010? Yeah. And also the rise of UKIP, uh, who was very popular in the European Parliament elections, for example. Um, do you think that those digital technologies that helped those parties, do you think it was the digital aspect that maybe helped reconfigure the British political space for some time? I think it would be a brave person who would say that the, the technology was that, you know, kind of influential and, mm. and that it sort of reshaped the party system. Um, I mean, certainly parties would benefit or those parties exactly because of the reasons we just said that, you know, they saw it as a kind of tool to help build their support base. And, and certainly the Liberal Democrats, from the analysis that we've done in the UK, were among the early adopters in terms of particularly at the local level, so more of their candidates, or at least they kept pace with the two main parties in terms of the proportion of their candidates that were online and using Web 2.0 kind of social media tools. And they were one of the first parties they um, moved to adopt a kind of a version of what my Barack Obama looked like in 2008. In 2010, mm. um, they had Lib Dem Act and they sort of were able to kind of sort of import. The other parties did so as well, but the Lib Dems did in a very sort of strong way. And they had, from the research that I did, you could see that there was as much activity as for the larger parties in terms of groups forming and um, the way it was being used. So I think you could argue that it enhanced the position that they were in and it certainly, you know, would have helped them. But I don't think that it would have been itself you know, a source of, of restructuring the party system. But I do think that it gives voice to perhaps causes and parties that previously might not have been able to have some kind of public profile. The key is how do they remain there? I think that's the thing is that the technology will provide you with a platform and a voice and you can begin to build support. But then actually you need a message and you need to sort of be able to keep people coming back and you need to build that relationship. So, so I think it's a helpful tool, but um, longer term, I don't think it can sustain parties unless they have a core of sort of support and a resonance with the right. voters. Right, because you can't separate the technology from the context. No, no, I mean, yeah. And then parties that have kind of formed online as the workshops we've been discussing, parties like the Pirate Party in Germany have failed. I mean, as in, I mean, they've got off the ground, but they haven't become a kind of a force to be reckoned with. And so they're sort of an example of perhaps where the technology is just not enough. Mm -hmm. Um, although obviously there are people out there that would support their message and support them, you know, this idea that it's, you know, going to lead to a sort of, you know, a sort of radical restructuring of the party system. I don't think we can really draw that conclusion right. from the evidence so far. Right, right. I could be proved wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I want to ask you a bit about citizens' participation and sort of that demand side of political communication. But first, as we were kind of talking about at the end of your your talk yesterday, um, what do you see as moving forward into a potential phase five or what's next in terms of digital campaign adoption in the UK? Or what do you think is worthy of thinking about moving forward? Well, I, I think this has really sort of been the thing that has not kept me up at night, but I have been wondering, you know, I've gone through these four phases and, and, and then the $64 million question is, okay, so what's next? I mean, I think that in a way, probably it's more of the same in one sense. So this fourth phase is all about bringing scientific methods and data analytic skills and, if you like, kind of non-traditional skills into campaign environments and recruiting people who are experts in building computer programs and software. And so I think that that's one direction. And I think there'll be an intensification of that, that people will increasingly see these tools as being something to rely on and that can help them and drive their decision making even. I mean, you could sort of logical conclusion sort of argue that, you know, you feed in your sort of data and the kind of the computer will tell you, you know, how to run your campaign, right? So that's kind of far fetched, but that's sort of one direction of travel that it just intensifies. I think the other is that, again, we see more of this data-driven campaigning carrying on and more micro-targeting. But I think that there is a kind of argument that it could be used for purposes which ostensibly they're used in the campaign, but they're also they're used in a way of a kind of opposition or they're used to, um, to thwart electoral outcomes or, or in a kind of anti-democratic aspect. So we think of campaigns as being mobilizing. That's what they're supposed to do. But I think that increasingly we're seeing use of these tools in a subversive manner that is actually undermining democracy and is deliberately trying to misinform people, to um, demobilize certain constituencies, you know, spread messages that make them think twice about voting at all uh, because their preferred candidate, you know, is shown in a bad light and divide and polarize and cause conflict. And so I think that there's a kind of use of these tools, there's a sort of perhaps a neutral way that these tools could work just more intensively. But I also think that they could be put to uh, less uh, positive uses and and ultimately be subverting perhaps what we understand as democratic campaigning. And so that's perhaps a subversive direction of the next phase is that it's more about um, undermining the kind of the democratic sort of processes that we've come to know and love. You know, elections, you know, they're not perfect, but they, they work in a certain way. And I just think that the evidence that we've seen from how these tools have been used in recent uh, US elections, uh, certainly the rise of Cambridge Analytica, you know, sort of it does sort of lend itself to thinking that there's a there's an outcome whereby there's a, d- a direction of travel that is potentially sort of, I wouldn't say overturning, but certainly subverting some of the norms that we associate with with democratic elections. Yeah, it's interesting that maybe the uh, democratic mobilizing potential isn't necessarily linear, that it cops out at some point or tops out at some point and um, may, may come to... Uh, yeah, to not have these sort of positive democratic effects that we associated with in the early yeah. days. Yeah, and I think this is probably, but this captures a broader um, discussion that's happening, which is about the future of liberal democracy more generally and where liberal democracy is going. And, and people talk about crisis of liberal democracy. And I think we've always assumed that representative democracy will continue in its current form and that, this, you know, that, it, that the system will carry on. But I think that there has been sort of more and more disquiet about actually, is it as robust as we think that it is. You know, can democracy fail effectively? And I do think that some of the ways in which these campaign tools are being used can be seen as challenging the norms of democracy and could be seen as anti-democratic in the long run. You know, you think democracy is about informing voters, but if they're being used to deliberately 
send misinformation to voters to make them think something that you know isn't true that is clearly not in the democratic interest but it's being done on you know under the guise of a campaign so i think it's um you know there's a role here for regulation and and of course research as to you know what what's driving some of this and also to what extent also does it actually matter? Does it have the effect that people think that it does? Because we could be getting very, very upset mm. about some of these techniques and actually um, find that their impact is not as, as strong as we think. Yeah, it's interesting and can all be read about, I'm sure, in your upcoming book. Yes, <laughs> yes, eventually it will be out. <laughs> but um, but I want to ask you sort of in these, in these final minutes, um, because uh, I'm a big fan of your work on e-participation and this sort of stepwise ladder of participation, um, which is essentially, yeah, again, that sort of demand side of, of what's the effect of these digital technologies on, on citizens' mobilization and how they campaign. So I'm wondering if you'd maybe reflect a bit on what you had thought about. I mean, just the term itself, e-participation, was going uh, um, sort of back to, to email mm. being a new thing. So um, can you talk a bit about what you were conceptualizing at the time and maybe how things have changed since then? Yeah, so I think in the sort of early days of looking at e-participation, um, I mean, in a sense, we were limited in how we studied it based on the, the data, if you like, that we had. So we asked certain questions about how people participated through digital media in politics. And those things tended to be about, have you signed an online position? You know, have you um, sent an email to your representative? Have you discussed politics in a in a group? So we brought in, I suppose, what we have seen as being other the existing modes of participation and classic modes of participation, and put an E in front of them and carried on. And so that I would argue, I mean, it was helpful. We needed to try and map the terrain, but it probably meant that we kept certain things perhaps off the table of well, is this participation or not? We didn't really have an easy kind of way of, of, of fitting it into a category. And I think that is probably the, that is the challenge now is to try and understand because as the technology changes and expands, there's so many different ways people can use it. And so is it just old wine in new bottles? Is it is it we are actually not really massively expanding the repertoire of kind of actions and that offline participation still is, you know, the kind of the gold standard and will make the change. And online is useful and helpful to that, but it can't on its own bring about change. Or, you know, are these new modes and new methods um, actually forcing us to reconceptualize perhaps what we think is participation and, and what, its, what its impact can be and what its meaning is for individuals that get involved with it as well? So, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking about things like, the, you know, the Arab Spring and that whole kind of movement that was the idea that it on its own that social media brought about it. Again, it goes back to this idea you have to have people who feel uh, strongly about a cause and then turn to social media to help them. So it doesn't happen independently. But it is clear that it was a critical uh, component and it helped with this communication and this mobilization and the building of resistance to the regime. So I do think that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not one of the skeptics, I'm not a cyber skeptic that thinks it's all slacktivism and it doesn't matter. I think there's probably parts of it that make certain parts of participation easier to engage in, but I would say that's probably quite a good thing. Mm -hmm. And there's possibly a, a kind of more uh, stepwise progression that if people get involved, even in a limited degree, that could lead them on to doing perhaps deeper acts of participation as well. And um, I think it's quite interesting that I think um, there's a book I read recently which talks about, I think it's Helen Margetts talks about tiny acts of participation and how the internet encourages these tiny acts, which we might sort of on their own think, well, it doesn't really constitute that much. 
but actually in a broader kind of scheme of things, these aggregate together to build change. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to be careful that we don't apply all of our kind of sort of old um, criteria for what constitutes participation and look necessarily for sort of an immediate change, but adapt, in fact, what we understand participation to be and see that actually it can happen in different ways and the effects may not be as obvious as perhaps in the past, but and our ways of studying them as well, our, our ability to detect the effect is is really hard, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean it's not there. And last question for you, um, because of this argument that, you know, and I think your research found this um, early on, was that these online e-participation activities may lead to more traditional offline forms of participation. Do you think we might be seeing, or it's possible to see what you've just discussed in terms of campaigning, where there's a sort of linear progression that then sort of drops off. Do you think small acts of participation might build up into, I mean, in, in an extreme case, some political obsession that maybe people then get fatigued and drop off? Do you, do you see that hmm. same dynamic? I, I know it's kind of un, uncharted territory, but I, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Hmm. I'd probably be, I would, no, I'd probably argue perhaps the other way is that I think that the fatigue element is perhaps less likely in an online environment because there's so many more ways that you can be engaged and involved and the creative options to participate um, arguably are just much wider and so um, actually you you would be probably um, in a sense there might be almost too many opportunities and that might be the the problem in a sense is that mm-hmm. now it's uh, you have so many choices and different ways that you can be involved and people might feel overwhelmed and sort of feel like they want to have a more simplistic sort of, you know, I voted, I did this, I did that, I've done my bit as a citizen. But I just think that um, actually having the creative potential to sort of create your own participatory engagement is more possible, you know, through the, the internet. You know, the, the people now, you know, they want to design kind of games to sort of get people to kind of get involved in. And the, the, the level of creativity, I think, that it sparks about how do we get people to engage with politics um, it's quite exciting. So so actually, I think there's less likelihood, in a sense, um, of fatigue, and there's a wider range of opportunities to get involved. So I guess I'm, I guess I'm probably ending, I do feel quite positive, I suppose, <laughs> um, about, about the future of, of online participation. Excellent. Well, I know you have a train to catch. Yes. So let's wrap it down. Dr. Gibson, thanks so much for taking the no, time and coming you, Michael, on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. I've just been speaking with Dr. Rachel Gibson, professor of politics at the University of Manchester. And that'll do it for this episode of the Social Media and Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. There's many more conversations heading your way, so subscribe if you haven't already. You can follow us on Twitter at SMNP Podcast. Sign up for the newsletter at socialmediaandpolitics.org. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, signing off from Copenhagen. See you next time.